Hello and welcome to Adam and Eve on CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton and around the world on CJSR.com. My name is Michelle Dang and I'll be your host for today's episode of Adam and Eve. Thanks for tuning in. Adam and Eve is Edmonton's only feminist news radio show. We are adamant on highlighting, discussing, and engaging with issues that affect women across Edmonton and around the world. On today's episode, we wanted to revisit the topic of COVID-19. One year ago, we aired an episode exploring the racialization of disease with epidemiology specialist Stephanie Booth. At the time, we didn't know about the impacts that COVID-19 would have on our lives. Today, we wanted to learn more about the impact of the pandemic on women, gender minorities, and others after a year of restrictions and lockdown measures. We are creating a two-part series entitled Revisiting COVID One Year Later, where we talk to two researchers with the University of Alberta School of Public Health. In this first episode, you'll hear an interview with Dr. Stephanie Montesanti, who has been researching domestic and intimate partner violence. Join us in two weeks when you'll hear part two of the COVID series, where we'll be talking to Dr. Denise Spitzer, whose research is focused on the impact of global processes on migrant populations. Now let's take a listen to an interview that Adam and Eve contributors Rose Eva Forrest Jenkins, Wen Chan, and Autumn Warnchuk conducted with public health researcher Dr. Stephanie Montesanti on the challenges that the past year has presented for survivors of domestic and intimate partner violence and those in the anti-violence sector. Hello, Dr. Montesanti. Uh, We're so grateful to have the opportunity to have this conversation with you today. So COVID has obviously impacted all of our lives this past year. And as a feminist news show, we're particularly interested to know more about how women and gender minorities have been impacted by COVID-related measures and restrictions. And so uh, we know that your research is focused on interpersonal violence. So we're very grateful to be having this conversation with you today. Um, So to start off, can you uh, introduce yourself and tell us about the work that you do? Great, thank you for the invitation. Um, So my name is Stephanie Montesanti. I'm an associate professor in the School of Public Health at the University of Alberta. And over the past five years or so, I have been conducting a number of of projects and studies um, looking at the impacts and experiences of domestic violence and sexual violence among diverse population groups in the province of Alberta. And part of my work is the strong relationships and partnerships that I have with the anti-violence sector in Alberta, which includes um, upwards of 30 plus agencies or organizations that provide domestic violence and sexual violence focused services and supports to individuals experiencing and at risk of domestic violence or sexual violence. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. And we're really uh, excited to have you on the show to kind of dive into this a bit further. So we know that intimate partner violence and domestic violence have risen over COVID, partly because people have to stay home. And in instances of uh, interpartner violence and domestic violence with people who are abusing them. What is really vital to you that you think people should know about interpartner violence and domestic violence during COVID? Certainly the global pandemic has compounded um, the experience of, of violence, trauma and abuse for individuals. Um, and particularly because of the public health restrictions and stay at home orders um, that were in fact at the onset of the pandemic. And as we have gone through um, different waves of the pandemic, Um, Over the past year, um, we have seen that uh, when there is a lockdown in effect, uh, we have 
reported incidences of domestic violence um, and sexual assault, um, which have gone up and have spiked in the province. So the biggest challenge is that these individuals who are experiencing violence or feel that they are at risk of violence or abuse um, are not able to reach out for support. Um, and that includes both informal and formal networks of support. So whether the formal network of support is actually calling you know, a, a hotline, a domestic violence or sexual assault hot, hotline for support or reaching out to a service provider um, or informal networks of support, for instance, reaching out to friends, neighbors, loved ones. Um, and, the, and the challenge with that is that and with being you know, confined at home, they're in the same space and environment as the, their perp the perpetrator of the violence. Um, so there's certainly concerns at play here around uh, privacy, um, uh, protest, you know, safety, protection, confidentiality. Um, so at any point, you know, it, it's hard to know whether um, a person's phone calls are being you know, monitored um, or you know, at any point when an individual goes onto um, the internet to search for uh, supports or services that are available in their area, um, you know, all that can be monitored. Um, and so really the, the, the challenges here around um, ensuring an individual's safety protection um, in the context of their home when they're not able to leave that space where um, domestic violence is typically occurring. <clears throat> the other challenge too is that um, in, in reaching out for those who do find a way to reach out for support uh, in the context of their home. So whether that's talking on the phone with a, a provider or um, anti-violence support worker or crisis counselor, um, they, it, we have to also remember that they are seeking support and, and advice or guidance from a, a trained professional in the context of an environment where the abuse or violence is happening. And that could be triggering for that individual. Yeah, thanks so much for that. I never thought about how um, a lot of those aspects can be re-triggering. So that's a really good reminder as myself as a um, anti-sexual support worker. Um, to move on to our next question, um, could you maybe talk about how certain groups marginalized have been disproportionately impacted by interpartner violence and domestic violence? Absolutely. So, I mean, I think it's, it's important to put things into context as well. <clears throat> so in a province like Alberta, we know that um, economies that are prone to boom and bust like our province here, have periods of high unemployment and instability. So it's important to put that context into perspective. So while COVID-19 has certainly played an important role in affecting economic and social factors um, that all compound the experience of uh, domestic and interpersonal violence, there are other contextual factors that were at play as well. So financial strain is, is one key factor that I, I will highlight here, which I think has played um, a, a role 
in the increase or rise of domestic and interpersonal violence during the pandemic. So families or individuals losing their jobs um, and um, it has been an important factor. And so we know that there's been a lot of research and evidence that has shown that when unemployment rate goes up, domestic violence and interpersonal violence rates go up. Um, so what we see is the spiraling effect, financial and economic and social factors that have a role to play here. Um, and that's, uh, you know, alongside, you know, the, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic, which has confined and restricted people to a home environment. So people working from home and dealing with a number of stressors like childcare, responsibilities, um, mental health, which is an important factor too. So we can't just look at domestic and interpersonal violence as an isolated case here. We need to understand it within its broader contextual context or contextual factors, or, or in other words, those social determinants of health that are also at play. Yeah, thank you so much for explaining that relationship between, um, yeah, finances and um, how that affects um, intimate partner violence. So we were wondering about um, supports for survivors of intimate partner violence and domestic violence, uh, because those supports have been forced to move virtually, but uh, also as well, like intimate partner violence and domestic violence is a unique case where survivors may only be able to access supports virtually. And this might've been like before COVID as well. So we're wondering um, how you see the landscape of support services uh, meeting the needs of survivors and um, how they reach those needs. Yes, I mean, that's a really important uh, factor too, or um, has been in, in fact, a struggle for the anti-violent sector in Alberta. So at the onset of the pandemic, the anti-violent sector in Alberta was struggling to find ways to reach out to clients or those who might be at risk of domestic violence or interpersonal violence. So the public health measures introduced to limit the transmission of COVID have meant that most sectors abruptly pivoted to providing their services virtually with little to no opportunity to plan for the switch. And that's an important thing to keep in mind. So where we have seen um, a lot of innovation and uptake in virtual or remote-based delivery of care or services, has actually, and this is before COVID-19, has been in the healthcare sector. So, you know, for an example, uh, telemedicine, right? And in locations such as rural and remote settings, we have seen an uptake of virtual or remote-based delivery of, of services. But the anti-violence sector, <clears throat> and by anti-violence sector, I'm referring here to a range of community organizations, agencies, networks, advocacy groups, health centers, primary care clinics that provide domestic violence and sexual assault focused services. So we're talking about sexual assault centers, mental health counseling centers, women's shelters, transition houses, settlement services, victim and perpetrator services, and even primary care clinics who are all providing specialized uh, services like counseling, risk assessment, temporary housing for individuals fleeing violent relationships, safety planning for those who are experiencing or at risk of uh, experiencing violence or assault. And so all of these agencies, groups, um, organizations within this um, anti-violence sector 
had really struggled at the onset of COVID to reach out to clients. And, and in part because they were not experienced in virtual delivery. The important thing to keep in mind here is that when providing trauma-focused services and supports to, you know, to this population in particular, it is really based on relationships, trust, empathy, compassion. And so when shifting those services to that virtual environment, you risk losing that human connection. Um, and so that was an important consideration for those working in the anti-violence sector. They started to really question and think about how can we effectively and meaningfully shift our services and supports, including our online programs, virtually into that virtual environment or space um, in light of the fact that, you know, that in-person contact, in-person relationship is really foundational to the way in which they provide care, treatment, and support to their clients. And so the other point I mentioned before is that, you know, they had to rapidly shift, you know, their services virtually with little to no opportunity to plan for this. That's the other important um, thing to keep in mind here is that there weren't any supports that were offered to the sector. Um, and, and well, and frankly, any sector to shift virtually. And so they really had to adapt on the fly. They had to adapt their organizational practices, their workflow. Um, they had to support training of their providers and staff to you know, move to a virtual environment and, and orient them to different virtual platforms to deliver their services or to connect with clients. So it was, a, it, it was definitely a learning curve for the anti-violent sector in particular. And so this was one thing that my team and I really sought out to explore um, at the onset of COVID in the spring. So we just completed um, a provincial study that was looking at uh, organizational and provider experiences uh, and challenges with the adoption of virtual domestic violence and sexual assault interventions during the pandemic. And so some of the things that we really learned um, from this sector were, you know, the, the multiple factors that had influenced the, up, the implementation and uptake of virtual or remote delivery of interventions. Um, so some of the things that, you know, that were highlighted in our research were organizational factors like the capacity to change or readiness for virtual interventions. Uh, there were also contextual barriers uh, that were highlighted, like funding availability. So the federal government had provided the COVID-19 emergency um, funding for sectors, including community and social sectors, to that they could apply to. And that funding could be used to support, support organizational adaptation to virtual delivery of services. Um, but again, there's a number of things to keep in mind here. We're talking about a sector that has historically experienced resource inequities in um, you know, their capacity to deliver domestic violence or sexual self-focused services. So that's one key thing is that they were already grappling with a number of resource inequities and constraints. Secondly, the time that it takes to apply for that, for that COVID-19 emergency funding 
while also needing to rapidly, you know, they, you know, not be able to wait for that, you know, for that funding to come through. And so they still had to really quickly shift all of their services to a virtual um, environment, um, irrespective of, you know, whether their funding application would be successful or when they would be able to secure external funding to support virtual delivery. Third, um, many of the community agencies and organizations in the anti-violence sector are not-for-profit. And so what that means is that these organizations are heavily dependent or reliant on fundraising generating activities, right? Which are an important source of, of funding uh, for their organization that um, supports or funds and, sus and sustains their existing programs and services, right? In terms of what they, what they actually provide or what their, their organization does. And the pandemic actually, you know, forced them to halt a lot of their usual fundraising generating activities um, because they had to just deal with a number of other stressors and factors at play, um, such as, you know, shifting their services online or virtually. So there were a number of, of funding and cost constraints um, or considerations that the organizations in the sector were grappling with, which are really important to understanding this whole story of, you know, what was the experience of shifting their services virtually and, and what factors or barriers were at play with that shift. You had asked earlier about what that experience or what that met, has meant for um, vulnerable or underserved populations in particular. And one of the things that we've been really looking at is what we call the digital divide or digital exclusion. And, and this isn't unique to, to COVID, um, but, we, but it's something that has been looked at in the context of virtual delivery of, of care. Um, or virtual delivery of any service is those who are at a greater risk of experiencing violence or abuse are also the same individuals who um, experience digital inequities or barriers. Um, so thinking about, you know, some of those barriers would be lack of access to technology, for example, computers or smartphones, or lack of access to data plans or sufficient bandwidth in rural and remote communities in particular uh, to participate in virtual, um, uh, virtual care, as well as privacy constraints to safety and effectively participating in these services. Um, in working with some of the uh, community groups or agencies um, that serve newcomers and refugees in particular, you know, one of their consideration is around how to maintain cultural safety in a virtual space. Great. Um, yeah, so if there's uh, anything else you wanted to add um, before we say goodbye for today? Um, well, maybe just bringing it back to, you know, COVID-19 and, you know, the question around how do we ensure that we can, you know, safely reach out to um, individuals who are experiencing or at risk of domestic violence in the context of COVID, um, 
you know, the challenge with, you know, shifting services and supports virtually is still something that the anti-violence sector, not only in Alberta, but across the country are still grappling with. I think we need to think about, um, you know, more equitable um, federal and provincial funding to support virtual remote-based service delivery, as well as supports for service providers who are grappling with their own mental health challenges during the pandemic. I mean, it's just such a complicated, unusual time. I mean, and it's it's hard. I mean, as a public health researcher, it's never an isolated case. There's never just one story. Um, and so when we were doing our, our research on um, the experience of organizations and providers in shifting their services virtually, their domestic violence and sexual assault focused services virtually, um, the providers or the anti-violence workers that we spoke to, you know, really highlighted what that experience meant for them. And they said, you know, it's aside from, you know, this being my job and my professional responsibility, you know, I'm also grappling with my, my own challenges, right? Um, that the pandemic has had on me. Um, and so how do we protect and support the mental health of service providers, especially, you know, when we're talking about providers in this sector who are providing trauma-informed care, right? Um, you know, their one-on-one -on -one interactions or consultations with their clients um, can be heavy, right, so to speak. And they're dealing with a lot of emotional and, and difficult conversations. Um, and we, we can't lose sight of what service providers have been grappling with, too. Uh, one of the things that really um, has ha, came out in our research, but was also has been highlighted too, we've heard a lot about it in the media, is this notion of Zoom fatigue. So with all these services being moved to virtual, um, you know, service providers in the anti-violence sector in Alberta really commented on this and they said, you know, it's, you know, we've been dealing with, um, you know, the uh, mental exertion that results from having prolonged online counseling sessions, for example. And when you're delivering, and I didn't highlight this, but this is actually really, really important as to answering the question of how effective are virtually delivered domestic violence or sexually assault um, uh, services, you know, how, how effective are they? The service providers um, have to uh, exercise a number of different things to ensure the safety of their client in a virtual space. So, um, you know, for instance, it's hard to pick up on nonverbal cues in a virtual space. It's hard to know whether their perpetrator or abuser is around in a virtual space. So there were a number of measures that service providers had to um, you know, enact when delivering their services online. Um, so, so for example, you know, they would start off their online counseling session with, um, is your, you know, is your partner around? Um, if, you know, if he's around, can I say hi, right? And um, so they had to build in different scripts in 
in their process uh, when when meeting with a client virtually to to be able to assess their safety, right? Um, and they found that you know online sessions took longer as a result, right? Because they had to pick up on you know as I mentioned earlier nonverbal cues and and um, that they would have, or, you know, our body language that they would have normally been able to pick up on one-on-one, -on -one, like, or, or sorry, rather in person. Um, so that's, that's an important, you know, factor or, you know, consideration I just wanted to just put on the table here and, and bring to this conversation when we're thinking about, you know, how can we effectively, appropriately, and meaningfully deliver virtual domestic violence and sexual assault services, um, you know, in light of uh, all of these factors. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing up that important point because yeah, I can imagine, um, yeah, like you mentioned having people who are counselors to then suddenly shift to this, um, you know, different space and all the challenges that arise and how uh, difficult that would be for folks who are providing um, services. Um, yeah, no, that's really, really important to think about their mental health as well. So thank you for bringing that up. Well, thank you for the opportunity to share today. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for joining in all of your amazing, insightful points. Um, you know, there's so much amazing information that you provided that, uh, you know, there's so much to think about and reflect on and how we can um, better support folks. So really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. That brings us to the end of this week's episode of Adam and Eve, Edmonton's only feminist news program. We produced this week's show in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada on Treaty 6 territory. We are grateful to be in the traditional territory of the diverse Indigenous peoples of this land. We recognize that colonialism is ongoing and violent. We encourage you to reflect on your own relationship further and ask what accountability would look like here in practice for yourself, the communities you are part of, and the larger systems that shape our daily access and opportunities. Thanks again to our contributors for this episode, Dr. Stephanie Montesanti, Rose Eva Forks-Jenkins, Wen Chan, and Autumn Mornchuk. While COVID-19 and lockdown restrictions has been hard for everyone, it is hard to imagine the struggles of those facing intimate partner violence, survivors of domestic violence, and those working in the anti-violence sector. Thank you so much, Dr. Montesanti, for providing us an opportunity to learn more about this topic and inviting us to reflect on the ways that we can support survivors. Make sure to check out our episode in two weeks' time when we chat with Dr. Spitzer about how COVID has affected migrant communities. Adam and Eve is a spoken word project of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton, Alberta, and our journalism is funded by you, the listeners. For more information on our program or to send us any feedback, please contact us on our Facebook page under Adam and Eve. We are always looking for more volunteers to help out, so if you're interested in learning any aspect of radio production, just get in touch. Thank you very much for tuning in. I've been your host, Michelle Dang, and have an adamant evening. <laughs>